0: Just a liker. You're kidding.
2: That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct.
1: What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by BetOnline.ag. I'm Pete, joined as always by Darius. Uh, today we're going to get back to a little bit of Lakers talk. Uh, it's it's nice to do that. You guys were kind enough to send in some mailbag questions, and we're going to get to a couple of those in the first half of the episode. We're going to get to more over the course of the next few pods. Uh, and then in the second half, we're going to continue our rewatch of The Wire. So the first question comes from Anthony Davis a great guy, a great name for, uh, for for this pod too. He asks, what impact positive and negative do you foresee the layoff will have? And how might it impact different teams? This is something I've been thinking about a lot, Darius. Now this is a difficult question to answer because we don't have any certainty of whether they're going to come back at all, how long the layoff will be. Uh, let's op- Let's give it some kind of structure. Let's say we're off for three months and then when they come back, they're playing games with no fans. In the stands um so that puts us we 're recording this in on march twenty second so that puts us in Late June, right? June 22nd, which would be around the time we'd normally be. And so now mind you, that's when they get back to it. They don't have access to facilities. Jared Dudley was saying on Twitter the other day that give them another month. So let's say we're not playing games until late July and we're looking to wrap. First off, how how do you think that should even go, man? Like, do they shorten? Do they end the regular season? Just go straight into the playoffs? Do they have kind of a preseason again to get guys warmed up? Like what? this is unprecedented. What What are kind of the prudent steps they need to take?
3: I think they do need to play some games, whether those are games that count or mm-hmm. not is another question. I don't know how to do that, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think having a second preseason would be interesting. I also don't know if that's a viable thing for the league to say like we're going to play regular like we're going to play games that don't count in order to get teams ready for the playoffs so i would probably look at them playing four to five games over a two-week span and then be able to then go into the playoffs I would also hope that in month three to four, right? Mm -hmm. So that late June to late July stretch, I would hope that they would gradually be able to under some sort of quarantine status of some sort, be able to start to like ramp up like practice facility activity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because if they don't do that then you're probably talking about resuming actual games closer to the middle part of August, Mm -hmm. which may be the right thing. I do not think that it would be fair to anyone, especially the teams who are trying to get to peak form or close to peak form for the playoffs, for them to just end the regular season and to just start the playoffs.
1: I I agree. I think that they need to have, I'd actually say even more than four or five games. I'd probably double that to eight to 10. 10? And Mm -hmm. yeah, and I'm totally fine. If this season ends in freaking late October or November or something like that, like that would be great, you know, and then we start the next season in January or February. Like it's going to take probably a couple of seasons to get things back to normal or they shorten the next season or however they want to end up doing it. Um, yeah. But, but I, I do think that that if this just means the NBA season for the next five years is a little bit off while they get back on track, I'm totally good with that.
3: Yeah. So so let's answer the question. Yes. Give me a couple of positives, like maybe one for the Lakers and one for another team or just general positives that you think would would apply to the Lakers and multiple teams.
1: I mean, assuming... You know, people, everyone gets through this with their health intact and their, you know, Mm -hmm. that it's rest for everybody. Um, yeah, I do think that there's some risk of injury in ramping up. And that's why I'd be more inclined to go to like eight to 10 games that aren't playoff games like do or die uh yeah. t- type situations. Because I think that the shorter the period where they play competitive games before they go into the playoffs, that that's kind of inviting injury and everybody's going to be operating on a faster timeline. Um, But that's still, you know, they need to be cognizant of that. And I don't think the the owners would hate having a few extra games of revenue, bro. Everybody's going to be watching these games. Like we're going to be so starved. I'm already starved of, of new basketball that when they come back, man, we're going to be watching every game. And, and, uh, I think that, um, you know, health is something that's going to be Pervasive league wide. And I think that's a great thing if we can get into the playoffs with as many people healthy and rested as possible. Yeah. Um, but under these very, very bizarre circumstances. So that's the positive I see, but I don't see that as being Lakers specific. Do you see something as like Lakers specific that, that like we get a benefit or detriment to as a result of this?
3: No, I think though that in terms of positives, that the health stuff and, and, and sort of getting away from a lot of the Nixon bruises that the Lakers specifically have been dealing with. The Lakers are one of the few top teams who haven't necessarily like load managed in in any real way. The Bucs mm-hmm. have been like that too, but the Bucks have also kept their minutes down of all right. their star players. And so they've done it in a different way. But the Lakers have had a bunch of guys just play through stuff a bunch. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it was only very recently that we saw that we started to see some of the Lakers players who had been nicked up start to sit out games right LeBron had sat out with a sore groin Alex Caruso had missed a game with like a tight hamstring and that was getting more and more pervasive within the Lakers and so I think them sort of getting a chance to recharge both mentally and physically would be really good for them specifically not necessarily from a major injury standpoint but from a just like okay like our bodies now have had a chance to sort of more more naturally heal from the hard push that they'd put themselves under, right?
1: Yeah. No, that's exactly that's exactly the case. And that's and that's also why like ramping back up over a longer yeah. period of time is healthy it, exactly. it, for, for them to do that. So I actually, you know, in some ways I think it was um it's a negative too, because LeBron I was really struck by the pacing of LeBron's season. Yeah. And like they were collecting wins, but he was really starting to ramp it up to like, because he knows exactly the rhythm of a season. And this obviously breaks a long season, Mm
3: -hmm. right? Not just of of a regular season, but of a projected 100-game season season. versus like an 82-game season, right? And so there's probably few players around the league who have that down to a science as much as LeBron James.
1: That's right. And so this this negates that advantage a little bit. If we do end up completing this season, uh, LeBron will be a rookie at at navigating this just like everybody else will be. Um, But... That said, I do think that the Lakers' chemistry is a real positive that, hmm. they are, um, that they're going to be able to really come together quickly and that like it's like a, a family reunion, right? Like They got along so yeah. well that they missed each other. They're going to be really excited to get back together and everyone will have some degree of, of enthusiasm for that. But I think this Lakers squad, especially with everything it's been through and with how tight they've been since the very beginning of the season, I think they'll feel that doubly.
3: Yeah, and on the negative side for me, be prepared for some ugly basketball. Yes. Even after, say, even if it's at the high end of games played that you suggested, like, let's say it's 10, let's say it's 12 or it's 15. Mm -hmm. I would still imagine that when the intensity of the playoffs kicks in, there will still be this sort of innate sloppiness and not readiness that exists amongst a lot of the teams as they start to try to slide into what is playoff intensity. And I would not expect basketball to look clean. And it'll be interesting because the Lakers were just starting to play some of their best basketball of the season. Their last game was a loss against the Nets, but we all sort of anticipated that. trap game, But. In the lead up to and then the execution of that Bucks game and then that Clippers game, the Lakers were playing probably at the highest level they really had been all season in terms of their sharpness and execution and their focus from a possession to possession basis on what they needed to do on both sides of the ball. And a lot of that is just going to be gone. Mm -hmm. Right. Like for all of these teams. Um, and, and so you might have healthy bodies and refreshed minds, but those things will not be sharp. Right. And that to me is going to be one of the major drawbacks. Like we are fiending for live action sports and what we actually get to watch. (laughs) <laughs> will probably be yakety-sax music yeah. for a lot of these games. So, so that's interesting to me.
1: All right. So next question comes from Steven, who asks, who's your all-time bench team for the Lakers? Selections would be only players who spent most of their Laker career as a sub. Odom would likely be the number one pick. So let's come up with five guys between sure. the, th- the three of us. Uh, first off, do you agree that Odom is the likely number one pick there?
3: I do not. Oh, who do you think it is? I think it's Michael Cooper. Tell me why. Michael Cooper won five championships with the Lakers. He was a key contributor on all of those championships. He was a defensive player of the year off of the bench. He could start in a pinch. Odom could too, but I'm just making Cooper's argument here. He -hmm. could start in a pinch. He could play either guard spot. He was an elite defensive player. And so that sort of strength of being like drilling down into one individual thing that this guy can be relied on to perform every single night. To me, that is one of the strengths or the calling cards of like a high level role player. So I would probably pick cooper just in terms of that stuff as well as just time he was a laker spent his entire career as a laker those are sort of intangible things that i think boost up his case a little bit
1: yeah that's fair i i still go with lamar i think that he's got okay. a you know broader lamar was so versatile that was that's part of what i think makes for a great bench player is mm-hmm. whatever hole you need plugged in lamar could rebound he could defend he could handle the ball he was an okay shooter Um um, he, you know, he, he could score. He, he was never as aggressive as I would have liked to see him be. That's like right. he could, he could have been more of a scorer than than he decided to be. But um, I, I just thought that as a bench player, that's part of the responsibility is to kind of like fill whatever hole the team needs. And sometimes he did that better than others. But I just thought, think that his game was more well rounded than Coops was. With a nod to oh, for sure. Like Coopers sure. more of a specialist. I think he would have been. Coop would have been phenomenal in today's game as a three and D type of guard. He would—he was the o- OG three and D guy. Like yeah. for the longest time, he held the
3: playoff record for most three pointers in a playoff game. I think it was like six or, or seven. Mm-hmm. Um, like what a time to be alive, right? Where right, six right. or seven threes, it like right, it was a record. Yeah, <laughs> was like a record. Um, and. And he was such a great defensive player. Like I said, he won Defensive Player of the Year. Like to me, when Larry Bird, when Larry Bird says that you are the toughest defender that he ever went up against. Mm -hmm. And, and he's saying that it's Michael Cooper to me, like that's all, the, like, forget the awards. Sure. Like, that's all you really need to know, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's how good he was. It, it, it sort of reminds me of Michael Jordan saying that, like, Alvin Robertson was a guy who gave him a lot of problems. Like, Robertson was a great defensive player, and he's one of those guys who sort of lost a history mm-hmm. in terms of, like, his tenure with those really good Milwaukee Bucks teams that were under Don Nelson. But when when the all-time great, players say you were a thorn in their side to be like that makes you a special type of player
1: yeah so so we've got coop and we've got lo who else you got? Give me so this lineup's not going to make sense. I'm just trying to get five guys here. Robert Ory, people forget that Robert Ory was not a starter for most of his career with the right. Lakers. It was usually Samaki Walker, AC Green, Horace Grant, guys like that. So, uh like, you know, Big Shot Bob, everyone knows his game. He was a guy who would kind of float through large chunks of games and large chunks of the season, but when you needed him, he was he was also very much that stretch four type of guy. It's funny like a lot of these great players are kind of uh we didn't think of them as that at the time but they're kind of forerunners for you know where basketball ended up going um all right so so big shot bob's mine now we got two more slots who who's your your next pick there
3: you know I haven't done any research here. How many games did Bob McAdoo start for the Lakers?
1: So Bob McAdoo is on was going to be one of my two. He, Great, uh, yeah, yeah. He, uh, I'm, I'll call up his uh, his page here. But when he was with the Lakers, he got traded to the Lakers at the age of thirty. He played for us for four seasons. He started exactly one game. So t- uh, t- t- tell us about Bob McAdoo's game. What uh, what do you remember look, about it? When you talk about when you talk
3: about guys who would fit in today's NBA. Mm-hmm. Bob McAdoo was probably the first prototypical, like, stretch big man type, right? Mm -hmm. He would probably play a ton of small ball. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. like, he would probably play a ton of small ball center, Mm -hmm. like, in today's NBA. Good shooter, could shoot with range, out to 20 feet, right? Like, there wasn't really a three-point line, or there was, but, you know, not... When he was with the Lakers, at least, but not something that a shot that like coaches were saying big men should should be taking that shot. Good rebounder, really good player, just overall. Um, spent a lot of time with um the Buffalo Braves. Mm-hmm. He won and an MVP it was probably, there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like, I I mean, when you're talking about the all time greatest, like guys who played for the Clippers, right, because the Clippers are basically the Buffalo Braves, like McAdoo would probably be that player, right? Like we think a lot about, oh, like Blake Griffin or Chris Paul, or maybe even guys today that'd be like, oh, no, it's Kawhi Leonard. Like, nah, there was this McAdoo
1: guy who won a league MVP. And was just a fantastic player. He averaged over 30 points a game for three straight years. 30.6, 30. 34.5, 31.1. He was one of the best 34. scoring bigs. 34.5? Yeah. No, he was getting buckets, man. And he was like shooting 18, 20 footers. It's very easy to see him in the modern game stretching no, like, that out almost, to the three-point line. like Almost like an OG Dirk mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm.
3: to a certain extent, yep. right? Like big dude, could play inside, but could stretch you out, was a good rebounder, would... Defend some, like just, just a really good, good player. So, yes.
1: Yeah, so, so he, he backed up Kareem in for a large portion yeah. of the early eighties. He played with the Lakers between 82 and 85. So that would have given him two championships. Yeah. Cause he was with the 82 and 85 teams. So yeah, he was a great just bucket getting big off of the bench. So we got one more spot. Um, I, I'm going to go with one of my favorite players when I was a kid, just played with the Lakers for two years, just, when you're a little kid, sometimes you latch on to guys that maybe you wouldn't have when you were over. Do you remember Orlando Woolridge? Of like, course. Orlando Of course Woolridge.
3: I remember Orlando Woolridge.
1: He was great, man. He was a bucket getting forward. He would score everything. Cedric Sabalos, years later, reminded, uh, reminded me so much of him. I freaking loved Orlando Woolridge. That dude didn't defend anybody, but he could get buckets, man. What do you remember about him?
3: Oh, man. That dude was a dunker. He was a dunk, like he was a finisher, man. Like, and in fact, like, so Woolridge really made his name with the Bulls. Right. Mm -hmm. So he played with the Bulls during the the mid 80s when Michael Jordan was coming up. And then he floated around the league a bunch, but he was just one of those sort of off the bench scoring forwards. He could create his own shot some. He had a funky looking jump shot. Uh He like an ultimate slashing type of player. Right. Like he was not nearly as good as this guy. But he was in that same sort of mold as like a Dominique Wilkins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sort of like a big forward who made his bones getting to the basket and slashing to the rim. He was a terror on the fast break. He was one of those guys that if he was lurking weak side, he, he would be a great dude to like stick in the dunker spot or like when his man turned his head and if there's strong side action, he could leak in weak side and catch a pass and just finish right over the top of, of big man. Woolridge is like, that's a great pick. That's a great pick.
1: Awesome. So that's, I, our, that's our five. Go ahead, go ahead. You got a six man? Just an honorable mention.
3: I had a soft spot for Luke Walton. (laughs) I just had a soft spot for him. He was one of those guys. He was like just the ultimate sort of wheel greaser for those triangle offense teams that... Phil played and then later on right because he because Luke was a rookie during the 2004 season where the Lakers lost to the Pistons right and then he stayed with Kobe over those years and then was sort of a key contributor later as the team sort of ran back up like in to contender status and, and so Luke was just one one of those guys that I liked it when he came into the game because things just looked better. Right. And it wasn't always because he was the guy who was handling the ball a lot, but he was just running the offense and doing the stuff that he needed to do. So I always appreciate Luke Walton's game, even though he was a big whipping boy for Lakers fans because he signed that kind of big contract Uh that he never really lived up to.
1: No, that's that's right. Yeah, no, Luke. It's funny how like when a guy ends up coaching your team, like it's. I have a hard time remembering Byron without like without sure. the coaching kind of bleeding into it. I have similar feelings about Luke. But yes, Luke. Luke had his moments. He remember when they changed to the ball. They changed to a different ball for like the first half of the season, and he led the league in three point shooting. Anyway, we're get, we're getting way off track. We, we ran long. It's gonna take. We're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna come back and then uh, uh continue our rewatch of the wire. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on, but you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on. Or let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino and blackjack. All open 24 hours a day and all online, including their $750,000 poker series. If you're into props and entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the weather. Visit their website and join today and receive a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet online, your online wagering experts. All right, so we've moved on to episode 2. If you're still catching up with us, uh you can find the old episodes of The Wire which we're we're rewatching on HBO and on Amazon Prime. If you have Prime, you get it for free. Uh so we're on episode 2, which is called The Detail. Uh in the last episode which was The Target, that was the first episode of the series written by David Simon, as was the second episode, The Detail. So what's happened is in episode 2, uh or at the end of episode 1, one of the witnesses was was murdered. One of the witnesses in D'Angelo Barksdale's trial was murdered. McNulty is very much thinking like, yo, these guys, like he thinks very highly of the Barksdales because he's been on the street and he knows that like these guys are serious, serious dudes. The Barksdales have been trying to grow, but do it quietly without gaining much attention. The D'Angelo Barksdale murder case and him getting off has piqued McNulty's interest. And so... He's been able to kind of, he went to the judge, caused a stink, got his, uh, his major pissed off at him. Um, but they've created a detail, but it's very, it's very much, we want this to like, yes, we have to do this because we've got a judge asking questions, but every unit that they've, they've picked guys off of the different divisions, right? From homicide, narcotics, uh, casualty, different, but, and every, manager of that place is saying, Here, take my worst guys, right? So yes. you got this kind of ragtag group and headed by Cedric Daniels, who's a particularly interesting character. He brought his good folks, right? Yeah. But uh but yeah, go ahead, man. Go ahead. No, I
3: was just gonna say that it, it would be like if there was an expansion draft, right? Yes, <laughs> who were the guys yes. <laughs> who are the guys who get left unprotected in the expansion draft, right? It's right, your right. it's all your 10th through 15th players right right so that's all these dudes
1: yes yes that haven't cracked a case in like a decade uh and they're just collecting paychecks at this point right no they sent them
3: a couple of drunks a couple of guys like like and we'll get into to some of these guys but but just a bunch of guys who like really this is who you sent me
1: so, right. And one of them, one of them is Roland Prezbeluski. Prez, right? And he is the son-in-law of one of like the higher higher-ups, like the guy, one of the gosh, what is Valchek? Valchek's like second the the rung of management, like right below the chief, right? Yeah. So it's he's very high up and but he's kind of a screw up. He's not kind of a screw up. And, and on his first day, he accidentally discharges his weapon and shoots the the wall, right? And Prez. uh oh, and, my and goodness. so he yeah, so Daniels is kind of given this ragtag group and he finally Daniels meets one of the uh, the other guys in the elevator that's on the same level as him. Like, please give me Sidner. Right. Please give me somebody who's not a total screw up so that I can just I, I just need at least one more guy. Right. Um So. So let's talk a little bit about this. Cedric Daniels is a guy that both of us really find interesting. And we can get into, uh, deeper into the show what happens with, uh, with Prez and, and Carver and, and Herc and all of that. But so what are your impressions of Cedric Daniels at this point in the show?
3: He's clearly aspirational mm-hmm. in the scene that you just described where he's in the elevator. So he's in the elevator with, um, the person who is Prez Beluski's boss, basically. And he's talking to him and so he's trying to negotiate with him to get one of that guy's better people, just like you were explaining. But in the dialogue between Daniels and that other character, that, that other character says like, like I'm on the same short list as you are to mm-hmm. make lieutenant. And clearly Daniels understands that he needs to play the game a certain way and In order to keep moving up the ladder and you see this a lot throughout episode two in a lot of his conversations both with his superiors and with some of the members of his own team about the way that he wants to run their shop. Based off of the expectations that he's gotten from his bosses about how this outfit should be run and what the goals should actually be. And Cedric is very interesting though, because even though he's quote unquote a company man, which is something that like, um, one of the other characters, Bunk calls calls him, he's also someone who clearly understands the right way to do police work. Mm-hmm. And and so there's a great scene where he's talking to some to one of the attorneys, and he's asking her to sort of lean on the deputy in order to get him some better men, because he understands that the type of casework that needs to happen in order to do this case, he needs better people. So mm-hmm. he's clearly... Looking at this from a wide scope, which makes him conflicted and very interesting to me.
1: Well, it's the balance between the actual work yeah. and the politics of it, of like how you actually, how good are you actually at the job versus how good do you look to the people that you need to impress, right? So if you view it as kind of a spectrum, you've got McNulty on one end who really cares about the police work, um, and does not really give that much of a crap about who he pisses off in the process of that. On the other end, you've got say, You've got somebody like, say, Irvin Burrell, Irving Burrell, who's the, the deputy ops, who's all politician, right? And he yeah. cares all about how it looks and how to manage the narrative and all of that. And like only cares about the work to the extent with which, to which it impacts how things appear. Daniels is somewhere in between, right? Like kind of yeah. the middle point between those two perspectives. And he has to balance that. And you see that. So. What ends up happening later in the episode is different people get kind of frustrated with the approach of where the bosses want to take things. And so you've got Carver, Herc and Prez Presbeluski getting drunk uh, on an underpass, on an overpass, right? Um and they decide it's like two in the morning. They decide, hey, we're going to go to the terraces and we're going to knock some heads. Right. We're going to physically intimidate the people there to get what we want, because that's that's the Western District way. Right. And uh this is very much led by Herc. And so they go. And it's just like it's a it's a terrible idea for a multitude of reasons. And, and if you've just started watching the show or if you're if you're not familiar, the it's a high rise project. Right. So there's. I don't know how many stories it is, probably 15 stories. So they park right in front of it and get like some dudes just like grab, taking his laundry out and they rough him up a little bit. Some 14 year old kid is like eating a bag of chips and leaning on their cruiser. Just like, kind of being cocky. Right. Like what you going to do about it? And Chris Belusky like
3: pistol whips him. Yeah, he pistol whips
1: him. Whips him. Yay, pistol whips him. And, and like really messes up his eye. And so this, this situation starts to escalate where the people in the projects are like, man, screw you guys. Right. And they start throwing crap down. And now we've got ourselves a situation. Now there's gunshots and all of a sudden it, so it turns into this. It was a terrible idea in the first place. They didn't get anything out of it, which Daniels points out the next day. Um, but when. So it's this, and it's a police brutality situation. And it was, they were unprovoked. Like the people they were messing with did not do anything to them until people started retaliating from above. The, they got to get out of there. The police cruiser gets burned out. So the next day they show up, uh, they've got little scrapes and wounds. The 14 year old is in the hospital and you find out later, he's going to lose the eye. Um, And the, her, the, the kid's mom is filing a complaint with internal, internal affairs. And I'll let you take it from here on the Daniels point of view. Lieutenant Daniels comes up, see his three idiots in front of him, right? That he has yes. a situation he has to manage. How does he handle it?
3: Well, first of all, he reams them out all out. Like First of all, why were you here? What Mm -hmm. were you expecting to get out of this? And he listens to their BS reasons. And then he cuts that stuff apart really quickly in the way that you would expect someone who's as smart as him to cut through that stuff. Right. And then he asks the question, who hit the kid? And no one Mm -hmm. wants to speak up at first. But Presvilewski finally takes the blame. And he asks him point blank. Well, why'd you do it? And Prespaluski's answer was because he pissed me off. And then Mm -hmm. he walks straight up to Prespaluski and looks him right in the face and basically tells him, no, he didn't piss you off. And then he proceeds to lay out a viable scenario for why a police officer would strike a citizen in that instance in order to make the report look favorable in the police's manner in order to get Prespilusky off right mm-hmm. and, and it is sort of the classic conversation that you know happens in police stations all across oh, yes. this country right mm-hmm. when something goes wrong and they have to you know cover their butts these are the types of stories that can get told and right. to me that was a particular insight into Daniels that just is another data point in his ability to play the game, to succeed in the game, and what makes him sort of a conflicted character. But like, what did you take from that though?
1: So that was something that it was very politically savvy, but also morally reprehensible. And it kind of gets into the, like, when there's a power differential, the way that there is with, with Police and law enforcement versus citizens the degree to which that can be abused by like we often make the pr- police brutality ga- so for example, Herc is kind of the like caricature of the cop that beats on citizens right like that was yeah. his fourth brutality complaint in the last two years he's just like like hopped up testosterone filled guy just yeah. wants to bust some heads. Right. And so it's easy to, to be like, Oh, the cops who are, you know, commit police brutality or contributed to it are like that. Well, Cedric Daniels is not like that. Right. Cedric Daniels is very even keel, very sharp, very calm. Um, but at the end of the day still very much contributes to the problem and uh and, and and he's got several reasons to do that right for one he's the man in charge and he points that out to we're going to get to the conversation with his wife in a moment but he points that out to her like hey if they if it i'm the guy in charge so if they get busted for it like i it's on me too um uh, it also this is a new unit of guys who don't know who he is, guys who are a little wary of him because mm. he's viewed as a company man. Great He earns point. their loyalty. He earns their loyalty in that moment from Herc and Carver and Prez Belusky that like, yo, I could let you twist in the wind, but not only am I not going to let you do that, I'm going to help you get off. And so what stood out to me is that like the evils that – not just police officers, but just as people we can commit while telling ourselves that we're good people and we're moral people. Yeah. It's very easy to, to slide over to, to the dark side and, and do those things when, especially when the, um, when the content, when the, the, the content of your job is not always at the forefront and how things look. Like that's, that's where you can get in trouble just in life in general, right? Is when you're trying to appeal to how things look versus, Staying true to your moral code and character. It's super interesting, right?
3: Because Daniels, in that conversation that he has with his wife, she asks him point blank, why don't you just turn him in? And his first response is what you said. I'm the one in charge. So if he gets busted, that just runs right to me. And I'm the one who was over this unit with this guy who did this reckless thing. But the second thing that he says is you never turn on your own, ever. Mm -hmm. And she's like, even when it's a 14-year-old kid who's going to lose his eye, and he basically just gives her the look like, I know it's messed up, but them's the rules, basically, right? And this sort of gets back to what we were talking about in our last episode about this show in general, is that there are certain ways which everyone understands the rules and you're the willing game. yeah the game it, the game the game happens on both sides too yes and those who best maneuver within the game understand that that's going to be a driver of their success and the people who do not play within those rules all of the time are going to end up struggling some right and We've talked a lot about the cops side within this episode, but there's a very similar conversation and thing that happens with D'Angelo Barksdale in this episode where McNulty and Bunk go down and they're sort of like patrolling and trying to get information about the murder of the witness. And they end up having this long conversation with D'Angelo Barksdale and then they end up bringing him in to the station house in order to question him. And they run a little game on him to try to get him to confess. He doesn't confess, but what they do end up getting him to do is sort of like write down this apology letter to this fictional family that they made up of the witness who got murdered. And Mm -hmm. that gets d'angelo barksdale in trouble with avon right and so mm-hmm. there's no charges Barks d'angelo barksdale's not going to go to jail for this murder or anything like that but when avon ends up having a conversation with d'angelo he basically puts him in his place again mm-hmm. like look none of this is on you whatever happened to that dude happened you don't know nothing about it It happened because it was supposed to happen. What do you know about it? And D'Angelo is sort of just like, I don't know nothing. And he's like, exactly. You don't know nothing. So whatever happened, it happened for the reasons that it was supposed to happen or didn't happen because the reasons that it wasn't supposed to happen. And you got nothing to do with any of that. And it was just another conversation that reinforced the idea that stick to the game, man. And mm, right. when you start to wander outside of that by putting pen to paper, you're going to get yourself in trouble.
1: Right. And it also further illustrates how D'Angelo is a liability and like the the liabilities of nepotism and cronyism and yeah. people who are not particularly qualified to know the things that they know or be in the positions that they're in. Like, D'Angelo, on his own merits, had no business operating with the power that he did within the organization, just because he's, you know, Avon's nephew. It also, uh, you know, illustrates a weak spot, uh, that, you know, McNulty and Bunk will look toward, right, in, in terms of like, he's a weak spot in this organization where the freaking main guy is a shadow. He's a way to like kind of get in. And even in that letter, it gives just little bits of insight on how they think. And just that's, you know, they're building, they open this detail. They're given this like crappy basement place where people are doing construction and you can't hear all of that. Like there's this details not supposed to succeed and it's, you're chasing kind of a ghost in Avon Barksdale, but when they identify this weak spot, they can kind of start grabbing a little bit of string to pull themselves in. Uh, every episode begins with a quote, and it's it's usually the theme of the episode. And this is Marla Daniels, uh, who's Cedric Daniels' wife and uh, you know, an aspiring politician in her in her own right. Um, she says, you know, Cedric's explaining kind of the tough spot he's in because she's admonishing him for like, you know, you're covering up this police brutality. You're assisting this. And he's explaining like why he kind of had to do it. And then she explains back to him. Oh, I perfectly understand it's because this, this and that. And she says, the game is rigged. Right. And she says, but you cannot lose if you do not play. And that applies to both ends. Right. Even somebody like the witness in Gantt, who got, who got, uh, Shot after testifying that yes, right. it was in fact D'Angelo Barksdale who did that is like, don't enter this world if you're not willing to play. So no. I think that's, that's the, yeah. And speaking to
3: that, Bodie had that great line when McNulty and Bunk had that first conversation with D'Angelo, right?
1: Yeah. So, so Bodie is one of the, he's one of the lower level dealers in the low rises. If you see the orange couch, he's the kid. And it's funny because Bodie also like, there've been a couple of instances where Bodie is not thrilled with middle management. That's one of the things that kind of cracks me up about this show is that it's like the Baltimore drug trade. It's the world we don't know, but there's like this same, like who hasn't been in a job where like the person who's above you, but not necessarily in charge, the person above you, you're like, yeah, I wouldn't have done it that way. And you kind of question, right? Like, Bodhi thinks D'Angelo is soft, right? D'Angelo's just been assigned to the low rises. And um they they put they end up putting uh Johnny, who's one of the junkies, in the hospital, right? Because yeah. that's how Bodhi wants to do business while D'Angelo just walks away, inspiring Bubs to turn informant. We're gonna have to get to that in a in a future episode. But yeah, like it's like you see the issues with middle management and the dynamics of that kind of on both sides of the equation.
3: Yeah. And so there's that great line, right, about playing, like playing the game. And Bunk and McNulty are asking D'Angelo about whether or not he thinks it's right that this state's witness got killed. And Bodie just sort of jumps right in and says, I can't speak to what's right or wrong, basically. But I will tell you, if you out there witnessing, yeah. then... <laughs> then something bad is probably going to happen to you, right? Mm-hmm. Which speaks to the point that you were just making about both sides of this understand the game and the measures that will be taken based off of the actions that sort of like the dominoes that fall, that that's going to trigger actions, right? And mm-hmm. the the great... Conversation at the end of the episode between Lieutenant Daniels and his wife, where she's basically laying out how he's just in the worst possible position, right? Like she's telling him, they're telling you to do this case quick and not get anything
1: accomplished. But if there's no arrests, guess who's going to be in trouble? It's going to be you. Right. And you got everybody's expansion draft picks in the process of that working exactly. in an awful office. Like you're in an awful position. That said, if you then go
3: and work this case hard the way that you know that you can and what your instincts are telling you to do, guess who's going to catch flack for doing the thing that you're not supposed to do from the bosses? And he's like, And Cedric says that, I am. And she's like, exactly. Mm -hmm. The game is rigged, right? Yes. And and you cannot lose if you do not play. And Cedric was like, I always thought it was if, like, you can't win if you don't play. And it's sort of that idea of what he's after is ascension, right? But she's trying to put it to him, like, look, man, there's no way to win in this thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it was a great way to really close that episode um, with the line that they put at the very beginning as as sort of the precursor to what we were going to watch in episode two.
1: And that's a a great way to, to close this episode. This is a lot of fun, man. I love breaking this down with you. Uh, we'll continue with some Lakers questions at the front end of the next episode and continue with our wire rewatch. I hope more and more of you, uh, watch this with us. It's a great show. We'll probably after the first handful of episodes, maybe do like two at a time so that we can kind of jam through, uh, the the series, but it's a great show that, that uh, you know we both love uh and but until then you've been listening to laker film room podcast and we'll catch you guys next time
0: angels got it in low to mikhail McHale wants to turn his double team just pass out of front broken up by worthy tip to magic worthy dies on his belly magic scores there's
1: magic got it magic fires it's the lakers win the game the lakers win the game
0: Campbell in and out the ball is tipped and it's saved Three seconds left. Here's Van Ixel. This is for the win. He got it! Kobe Bryant, 48 points, 16 rebounds. An amazing performance by Kobe. Shot with his eighth block shot that ties an NBA Finals record. A lot of Laker fans I'm sticking guessing. around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston, in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I know red Arbach is uh, rolling over. Kobe. Hard to believe. Are you, you kidding it. me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? How strong was that? A triple on a fall away in the corner with a shot lockdown down. Lakers by three. Ryan spinning in the lane. Back for Gasson. Freddie Pac- and it's back to a three-point game. And the critical part was Beatrice jogging back. Didn't bounce the floor.
2: It's a two for one situation. Kobe Bryant picked up by Powell. There's the move. Two
0: missing. Under Bryant. Yes. And that was a little tough to Alvin Gentry. Bad insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me?